every single mental health condition can be impacted by food. And that's really the emerging research that I shared in This Is Your Brain on Food. If I were to break it down, for example, take a condition like depression. People tend to think about sugar and sugar cravings as being, you know, worried about dental hygiene. Maybe I'm going to gain weight if I eat a lot of candy and chocolate, but actually it's affecting the neurons in your brain. That was Uma Naidu, founder and director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital, the first hospital-based clinical service in nutritional psychiatry in the United States. Dr. Naidu is a board-certified psychiatrist, professional chef, nutrition specialist, faculty member at Harvard Medical School, and author of the book, This Is Your Brain on Food. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. Today, Dr. Naidu and I discuss the role of a healthy gut in maintaining mental health and the very real connection between food and mood. Today's episode is sponsored by Color. Color is a complete platform for healthcare delivery, providing the tools required to distribute large-scale health initiatives to dispersed populations. Color's Cancer Screening and Prevention Program, in partnership with the American Cancer Society, provides employers with accessible screening solutions, connection to clinical services, high-touch care advocacy, and support to improve health outcomes and reduce costs by detecting cancer earlier. Dr. Uma Naidu, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Luann. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, I'm pretty fascinated by your field. Nutritional psychiatry is relatively new in the medical field, and I understand it's growing rapidly. Tell us what you do as a practicing nutritional psychiatrist. It starts off, uh, Luann, with explaining that nutritional psychiatry is the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve our mental well-being and to work alongside the necessary medications as well as important forms of therapy. So it's really meant to be an additional tool in the toolbox for anyone pursuing more solutions to feeling better. It is a more nascent field. The evidence in nutritional science and nutritional epidemiology is continuing to evolve, including the exciting science around the gut microbiome. Yeah, the gut biome. We're going to get to the gut microbiome. But I'm just wondering, how do nutritional psychiatrists typically practice? Is it in a group setting with a multidisciplinary group of colleagues? So because it's a very nascent field, I'm really pioneering this field in the United States. I can tell you about my practice. Um, it's the first hospital-based practice in nutritional lifestyle and metabolic psychiatry, and it's based at Mass General Hospital in Boston. I Really, it evolved over many years from initially a small consultation service to more of a tertiary care consultation service. And what that means is my referrals come from within the hospital from different disciplines, uh, physicians or clinicians who want to refer their patients to use nutritional psychiatry to help their mental well-being along other forms of treatment. So for me, I actually work collaboratively with primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, whoever is also involved in that patient's care. I'm excited to see how we grow and develop the guidelines around this field, because one of the things I'm doing is creating educational resources like CME-based training programs at Mass General Hospital Psychiatry Academy to help other clinicians learn about this work. Wonderful. Well, we're all so glad to have nutrition become more of a focus 
in health and well-being. Thank you. Why do you say food is one of the most potent mental health medicines available? Because in large part, it's been overlooked and ignored. Yet I hear in my clinical practice all the time about symptoms that are very often related to food as one of the issues. I think to be fair to everyone, doctors really don't learn nutrition. Those of us who want to know nutrition have to really study it on our own and seek our training elsewhere. I think the last check, it was 20% of medical schools in the United States offered some form of nutrition uh, courses. So with that being said, a lot of our treatment is focused on finding solutions through medications, uh, solutions through psychotherapy and really not looking at the whole person or asking more about diet, nutrition, lifestyle, exercise, sleep, so many parameters. For that reason, you know, we want to bring this forward so that this is included in how an individual is treated because we know that nutrition is a major factor in so many chronic diseases these days. And if we are eating in a healthier way or tempting to move from the standard American diet called the sad diet for a reason to a a more healthy whole foods diet on more days than none, that we will definitely be helping our mental well-being. It's been the missing gap that's been overlooked. I think patients are well aware of that. The general population is well aware. There are so many influencers on, you know, social media and everywhere talking about food, but yet physicians have been notably absent from that discussion and silent. So there are definitely a few physician influences who do uh, because they have, well, some do in a very different way that I don't always agree with. And some do in a very educated way. So you're absolutely right, Luan, it's absent in that conversation. I was struck by a comment in your book that some food is as potent as pharmaceuticals when it comes to supporting mental health. Tell us some of the mental health conditions that food can help or harm. Really, every single mental health condition can be impacted by food. And that's really the emerging research that I shared in This Is Your Brain on Food. If I were to break it down, for example, take a condition like depression. People tend to think about sugar and sugar cravings as being, you know, worried about dental hygiene. Maybe I'm going to gain weight if I eat a lot of candy and chocolate, but actually it's affecting the neurons in your brain. In addition to everything else, we need to be thinking about that and cautioning ourselves to the amount of sugar we take that's processed and ultra-processed and really try to move more towards berries and pieces of fruit that have natural sugar. But they also come along with fiber and other nutrients and uh, vitamins and minerals that we need. Many people may eat a sandwich, a deli sandwich for lunch. Yet there are several processed, uh, ultra-processed meats uh, that contain nitrates, and nitrates actually can worsen depression. So just one condition like depression, there are many things that we really should be cautious about. But here's the thing, there's so many things that we can include and add to our diet to make us feel emotionally better that I'd like people to think about it more in terms of what can we add rather than what can we subtract. Well, I think that's good psychology for sure. You know, we're all familiar with the general guidance to eat more plants and more fiber. And usually there's the corollary, less processed food and less red meat, for example, to benefit overall health. But what I really appreciated in your book is the specific guidance that you offered by various mental health conditions. Depression was one chapter, another one on anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, 
And that's something that we haven't seen before. Suggestions that are really geared toward what are the particular symptoms, not necessarily even diagnoses that you're having. What foods, for example, might make us sadder? Yeah. So for example, let's start with breakfast. So I recall as a medical intern, the call room, you know, after working the whole night, we'd go to the call, we'd go to the doctor's room or the call room, and there would often be donuts or bagels and something like that. If you're hungry, you would have worked all night and, you know, you reach out for that. I didn't realize it at that time, but those foods were really not helping my brain. They were not helping my mood. They were probably making me feel much more anxious and stressed because the sugar, the processed, ultra-processed ingredients, the highly refined flours that were being used were not helping me, the high fructose corn syrup. Another example was, you know, at lunch, we'd often have sandwiches. We'd run to the cafeteria while we were on call and, and you know, get a wrap or a sandwich. And, and some of my colleagues uh, would be eating, um, you know, the deli sandwiches and things like that. And not realizing that the high level of nitrates in those foods, those processed meats, uh, the salami or the whatever it might have contained, were actually probably not helping them. Many people, and I hear this in my practice all the time, they're trying to cut back on sugar, so they try to drink diet soda. Unfortunately, those artificial sweeteners can be extremely harmful. Things like aspartame, saccharin, sucralose, uh, and even in, in terms of stevia, stevia unfortunately can worsen a condition like anxiety. There are others, there are the, the trans fats uh, and the shortening in hydrogenated oils in certain foods can also worsen your mood. If you were to think about a person who is eating a standard American diet, they actually might not have the best mood because a lot of the foods I mentioned are sort of everyday foods for a lot of people. I'm not here to judge what people are eating. All I'm saying is let's rethink what we're eating and let's think about how we're feeling, especially as we emerge from COVID, where we know that the rates of both depression and anxiety have really escalated. So can we rethink some healthier choices? Well, sugar and sugar substitutes being on the let's avoid list is a challenge. I mean, there's so much sugar in everything we eat from ketchup to bread to you know, it's everywhere. That's that's a that's a tall order. It is definitely a tall order. That's why my sort of attitude and my practice and my guidance on this is not an all or none response. It's really about what can we add to our plate then take away. I also like to talk about what are some healthier substitutions that we can think of. For one, there are now healthier ketchups on the market that have very little added sugar, almost zero, and you can look for them. There are salad dressings, pasta sauces that you can buy that are made by healthier brands. For those of us who are busy and can't necessarily cook at home, there are ways to cut back on those levels of sugar that we're eating. A simple thing like knowing uh, about fruited yogurts. We know and we hear blueberries are healthy. We also hear that if you do consume dairy, yogurts can be healthy. But a fruited yogurt, a half cup, uh, serving in the United States can have upwards of eight teaspoons of added sugar. I don't want people to hear this and say, that's it. I have to give up every single thing I'm eating. I'd rather they think, well, you know, I heard that 
yogurt was healthy and I was eating this blueberry yogurt every day. But maybe if I had a plain yogurt, a half a cup of plain yogurt with added uh, blueberries or uh, other berries or other pieces of fruit and a little bit of a sprinkle of cinnamon for sweetness, that's actually a much better choice for me. It's about those small tweaks, Luan, that I found are very powerful in changes that we can make that become sustainable versus saying, let's just cut out all of this and then we find ourselves craving something or going back and having much more of it. So I, I like people to think about it almost on a continuum like that. I like that. And then we spoke about foods that might make us sadder. What about food for a good mood? What would you suggest there? I love to talk about groups of food, uh, which makes it easier for people to remember, oh, let me think about having a probiotic-rich food, or, you know, uh, we just talked about yogurt, but live-active cultures or foods like tempeh, miso, sauerkraut, kefir, these are fermented foods. Fermented foods have been shown in very important research done at Stanford University to help to lower inflammation in the body. Inflammation is a word we hear about a lot, but inflammation is actually also now being seen as a condition that is worsening things like mood and anxiety. So chances are, if you are eating an unhealthy diet, that you have some inflammation. But by eating fermented foods in your diet, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, sauerkraut, these can actually fend off or fight back a lower inflammation. So very important to know. The next group is prebiotics. People think, you know, a prebiotic has to be a pill, has to be a supplement, but actually it can be found, found in the form of food. There are things like beans, oats, bananas, berries, garlic, onions, leeks, green asparagus. All of these um, actually contain prebiotic fiber, which is important for our gut microbiome. And by eating fiber, I always like to say, when you feed your gut, you feed your mood. So you, you're taking care of your gut, you're going to have a happy mood. So just eating prebiotic foods or feeding your gut microbes with healthier options. Then I like to talk about the healthy fats. So things like olive oil, nuts, nut butters, avocados, these are the good fats to lean into. Another group are omega-3 fatty acids, and these come from things like fatty fish, wild-caught salmon, can be sardines, can be herring, mackerel. These fish are rich in omega-3s. And then I would like people to remember that spices and herbs can be very powerful. Turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, oregano, lavender, chamomile, these all help to give us a better mood if we're eating them over time. Turmeric is a spice that if you're not familiar with, it's worth adding to your repertoire of spices because if you add a pinch of black pepper, this enhances the bioavailability of, of turmeric to your brain and body. But also turmeric has rich antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties and can be really helpful again for fending off inflammation. So another good choice. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that the B vitamins are an important group. B12, B9, B9 is actually called folate. And just by eating leafy greens, dandelion greens, romaine lettuce, arugula, spinach, all of these are rich in vitamin B9 or folate. And studies have shown that a low folate level is associated with a low mood. So just by making sure you're having adequate amounts of greens can help you too. So those are some of the the foods to tap into for a better mood. I noticed in your book also you mentioned something I'd never heard before, which is that the nutrient density of microgreens is up to 40 times more than the full-grown greens. 
That's correct. So when you see microgreens in your farmer's market or your supermarket, um, wherever you can get them, they are actually much more nutrient dense. Broccoli sprouts, if you've ever seen them, I like them because I like the flavor. They have a lot more of the active uh, antioxidants that are contained in broccoli itself. So sometimes the sprouts are just much more nutrient dense and an easy way to chop them on your salad or add them to something that you're eating. I'm speaking with Dr. Uma Naidu, author of This Is Your Brain on Food, about how what we eat can help or harm our mental health. We'll be right back. Over 600,000 lives will be lost to cancer this year. 45% of these can be prevented, but many will slip through the cracks. Why? Because far too many people are behind on cancer screenings. Colors Cancer Prevention and Screening Program, in partnership with the American Cancer Society, is designed to make cancer screenings convenient for employers and the employees they support. The program focuses on the most common preventable cancers. By combining highly accessible screening options, connection to clinical services, and high-touch care advocacy, we help employers address the number one cost to their health plan and improve adherence to regular screening. Give your employees the opportunity to prevent, detect, treat, and survive cancer. Start with Color. To learn more, go to color.com or email us at learnmore at color.com. have a section on dementia and brain fog in the book. And dementia is something we likely are all worried about in the long run. But brain fog is here and now for some listeners. It can arise from long COVID, perimenopause, lack of sleep, overworking. What are the dietary recommendations that you make for protecting and preserving memory? You know, memory is something that we should all be caring about. Uh, we should be mindful of the foods that we're eating that are protecting our brain versus harming our brain. The one thing I do tend to lean into here is the mind diet, which is really a comprehensive eating plan based on research that ensures a healthy memory. And it includes foods like those leafy green vegetables, colorful vegetables. People talk about the different colors, uh, foods like berries, nuts, olive oil, whole grains, fish, beans, poultry, and red wine. With less of an emphasis now on red wine, but really focusing in on that uh, really varied but colorful, healthy, whole foods, uh, fiber-filled diet. So that's one thing for people to think about. Can I just ask you to clarify MIND diet? Is that an acronym? Yes, it's based on research by the late um, Martha Claire Morris and her group, you know, researched this diet extensively. And MIND stands for the um, Mediterranean Dash Diet Intervention for Neurodegenerative Delay or MIND Diet. And then DASH diet is part of the diet that was actually designed to help hypertension. So what this group did is they studied the MIND diet, which is a combination of the Mediterranean with the DASH diet, and they looked at it in terms of neurodegenerative delay, or in fact, what we're talking about, the aging brain. 
And that diet is commonly available. Information on that um, in the on the internet. Or? It it is. In fact, uh, sources like the Nutrition Source at Harvard, which is a website people can Google, Tufts uh, uh, School of Nutrition, the Friedman School of Nutrition, also has a great website where you can get information. So if you Google Mind M I N D Diet, you will find not only sources uh, like Nutrition Source. Friedman School of Nutrition, Mayo Clinic, and others that will actually outline the foods that I just described to you and give you examples of, uh, you know, the the servings of, say, vegetables, whole grains, leafy greens, nuts, beans, berries, and other foods that you should eat as part of this diet. In your book, it jumped out at me was the quote from Ophelia and Hamlet that you said, Rosemary, that's for remembrance. Why did you include that? Uh, it's interesting that there's actually scientific evidence behind that, and that's that's why I chose the quote. So it turns out that there are herbs and spices that can potentially help with uh, really helping our memory and helping preserve it. That turmeric with a pinch of black pepper shows up, cinnamon, saffron, rosemary, as well as ginger and sage. So I thought it was interesting that that was quoted way back uh, at that time but in fact, there's, there's real science to show that these herbs and spices can be super helpful to our memory. I find it so curious and somehow distressing that we rediscover things like that, that we knew hundreds of years ago and haven't been leveraging rosemary all these years. And now, <laughs> now, now okay, then new research discovers rosemary. Now, do we have to eat it or what about aromatherapy? I think the, you know, nutritional psychiatry generally focuses on consuming certain foods, but I'm a big believer in how we can feel better in many different ways. What I know is I review the evidence around consuming it as a food and having those nutrients be part of a dish that one makes. But I also think what's super important is a management of stress, having a calm mind, and that's where having a beautiful scent or a calming scent or a helpful um, fragrance that we like can be very helpful to the brain as well. Where do you feel the evidence is really the strongest? And how has that evidence been accumulated? I think that that's a tough question, and I'll tell you why. The evidence is emerging all of the time, and in nutrition science, especially because the collection of evidence can be so, at times, difficult because food frequency questionnaires or other surveys to assess the food information that people are conveying can be challenging. People don't always recall accurately what they've eaten, for example. So I think that the strongest evidence is really around the emerging and continuing science around the gut microbiome, the power of what those trillions of microbes are able to do, the impact they affect on our physiology, on our just overall well-being, is, is for me one of the most exciting places of uh, what's showing up in the research. And we think that you know there are other mechanisms involved, but the gut-brain ecosystem and the gut-brain connection is one of them. Yeah. I interviewed Dr. Emron Meyer, a gastroenterologist on this podcast last year, and he spoke about how excited he was that there's evidence that signs of Parkinson's can be spotted 14 years ahead of the disease really appearing in a person. And it gives hope that during those 14 years, based on what you're seeing in the gut, you could change what's in the gut and potentially intervene and forestall the development. 
I couldn't agree more. I think there's so much of exciting information coming forth that we can use and exactly that type of research that's going on that can help us fend off changes in our microbiome. You know, let me share something about the brain itself. We talk about dementia, memory, and cognition. Well, you know, many of us are walking around the world with some abnormalities in our brain tissue, but they're not showing up as symptoms or they haven't developed into an active problem that's impacting, say, our memory. But many of us walk around that way. And one of the ways to start to impact those changes positively and have them uh, become less obvious and not grow and develop to become a problem is by fending off neuroinflammation. And one way to fend off neuro or brain inflammation is by how we eat. So eating healthier whole foods that are more anti-inflammatory and antioxidant in their properties, rich in plant polyphenols and fiber are very important to just eat and consume so that we are actively all the time fending off these potential changes in our brain and limiting them from advancing to problems of our memory or other issues. You know, I think we just don't often think about our brain, the fact that it's always on, it's 24-7, even when we're asleep, and we don't think that we need food. I mean, we don't think of food going to our brain. We think of it going to our our body. That's true. Um, That's a very good point. But that it needs fuel and that it functions better on premium fuel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it does function better on premium fuel. I like that. That's that's a great way to convey it. If you're not feeding it the right nutrients, you are running on empty. And that's when you just are not going to be feeling good either. How do mood and the gut-brain connection interact? You know, the funny thing is that people don't realize the gut and brain are connected. But it turns out that they arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo, and then they divide up to form two separate organs, which remain connected throughout life by the vagus nerve, which is our 10th cranial nerve. And I like to call it a two-way text messaging system, allowing for chemical messages to go back and forth between these organ systems all day and all night. But the other fascinating thing is that many of us you know, know or have heard about serotonin, often people call it the happiness hormone, but 90 to 95% of serotonin receptors as well as serotonin is actually made in the gut. So that is something that helps people to understand that more immediate connection between the food we are eating and the fact that there is serotonin being produced in our gut at that level. So if our diet is poor, we're not producing serotonin the way we might. If our diet is poor, we are basically not feeding the microbes, and the microbes are not breaking down the food and forming positive breakdown substances. And one of the things the microbes interact with is the serotonin in our gut. The way I'd like people to think about it is when you're eating poorly, you're really causing inflammation in your gut. You're not helping the environment of your gut and realizing that the serotonin is in the gut helps people to understand that it's a way to take care of the mental well-being by taking care of how they eat. You know, we haven't acknowledged mental health crisis in the United States, and especially among younger people. How can we promote nutrition or premium fuel for mental health among those who are lower income and maybe facing food insecurity? I know that's a really big question. It's not the role of the nutritional psychiatrist to sort it out, but do you have any perspective on that? 
I think this is where education of the public and um, public health messaging becomes really important. For one thing, I talk about how do we navigate the supermarket? Let's talk about where we should shop. Well, we know that the perimeters of the supermarket usually have the fresh whole foods, but the center aisles can have cost-effective, high-quality plant proteins and even seafood uh, options, for example. Dried beans, inexpensive, can feed a large family. They just require a little bit of preparation. But you can also find canned organic chickpeas, black beans, tons of different beans and legumes, very rich in fiber and protein, which can be rinsed and added to meals that are cost-effective. Instead of wild-caught salmon at the seafood counter, which can be much more expensive, canned salmon, canned sardines, canned mussels, canned oysters are excellent sources of things like zinc and excellent sources of omega-3s, which are great for you. So just having a few tips like that helps, as well as the fact that frozen vegetables, I'm not talking about a frozen dinner, talking about frozen berries, frozen, say, broccoli, these are uh, great sources which are cost-effective for a large family and actually pretty nutritious. So options like that and educating people, helping them understand the importance becomes key. So that's definitely one aspect of it. Um, another is that, you know, we talk about trying to buy organic foods, but not everyone has access. So these foods can be very expensive. So knowing that the Environmental Working Group puts out two lists every single year, the dirty dozen list, the foods that you really do want to try to buy organic because of the level of pesticides that have been found in them. Um, and then the clean 15, the one, the 15 foods that you can, you know, balance your budget by not necessarily getting those foods to be uh, purely organic. So there are different things that I talk about as ways to approach the situation. What research is underway that you're particularly excited about? Or is there research that you really think needs to happen that we could hear a little bit about? Sure. There's ongoing research around the microbiome. And I am very excited about the emerging use of psychobiotics, which are really beneficial bacteria that influence the bacteria and brain relationships. So that gut-brain connection being impacted positively by beneficial bacteria is one of the things I'm really excited to see how we can positively manipulate the gut-brain connection and therefore improve symptoms, improve how we feel in terms of mental health conditions as well. So uh, psychobiotics I'm pretty excited about. Is that happening all over the country? Are there particular centers of excellence for that? There are particular academic centers that have ongoing research, and there are international centers that are doing this type of research. So as that comes forward, there certainly are studies out there already. But as these come forward, I'm really excited to see if there are ways that we can literally use food and nutrients to help offset symptoms because they are offering such positive influences on the gut and brain. Have you seen situations where changes in diet have led to patients getting off of medications, let's say for depression or anxiety? Do you see that as a possibility? I do think it's a possibility. It needs to, to be carefully assessed by a psychiatrist. The reason I say that is because in psychiatry, we have life-threatening conditions. People can become suicidal, they can become psychotic, they can lose touch with reality. So I have definitely seen and been part of tapering off of medications in, in some select cases while monitoring symptoms closely 
with the person being highly engaged in a nutritional psychiatry treatment plan and actively making changes to how they're eating to be improving their mental health. So yes, it's I definitely have uh, seen that many times over. As with so many conditions, it would seem that prevention would be the most powerful if we could have everyone eating, you know, their best diet from a very early age that we might prevent a lot of mental health and of course physical health problems later. But it does seem that it may be most likely to come into play when there are symptoms present or when there is a diagnosis and then this is like an you know an additional ancillary kind of consultation to improve nutrition. I mean is that right? Definitely. We're not at a place where we are prescribing food, although I firmly believe that the food is medicine movement is moving in that direction. Um, but I do think that we are saying to people that by making small and steady changes and starting to eat more healthy than unhealthy meals, so I believe in sort of an 80-20 rule, you know, we try to eat healthy for 80% of the time, 20% of the time allows for people to be flexible and, you know, have a, a regular life. Like I said, it's not about restriction. If anything, I want people to feel they can add so many things to what they uh, are eating. Well, it would be a lot easier if our food environment were more conducive to put less onus on the individual, you know, having to be so careful and having to choose so carefully. That's what we hope for. I I think so, too. Dr. Naidu, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. We had a lot to discuss, and we didn't even get to some of the really exciting parts of your books. I loved the healing trauma menu and the menu to help depression. There's another one to reduce anxiety. There's one to support libido, to fight insomnia, and wonderful recipes for each. So thank you so much for being with us and enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Joanne. It's a pleasure talking to you. I too enjoyed the conversation and thank you for the great questions. I've been speaking with Uma Naidu, psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist. Her book, This Is Your Brain on Food, reviews several mental health conditions and related symptoms, offering evidence-based dietary guidance for each. Menus, like Menu to Aid Anxiety, are included with recipes. Her website is umanaidumd.com. I'm Luann Heinen, and this podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you like the podcast, please give us a review and share with friends.